0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Thank you so much for your presence this evening. We've got an outstanding show planned for you guys. This is our first episode of 2020. The year is 2020. One more revolution around the sun. Yet another decade, a new decade of human civilization. Incredible. We made it. Who would have ever thought we made it? <laughs> but we are multicasting this evening on a variety of different platforms. So if you have not heard the show before, right now, then you're in for a treat. If you want to join the community, we have set up. A bunch of people have asked me how to get to the community. Just go to allmylinks.com slash the human XP. Click at the top where it says community invite. That will let you onto the server. We are in the live discussion channel. We are going to be diving into the realm of the polymath tonight. Unlocking hidden human potential. I mean, it's going to be phenomenal. So, Whether you're here with us live right now, or if you're listening to the podcast version of this, thank you so much for your presence. It's sincerely appreciated. Either way, sit back, grab a drink, enjoy this conversation. The human experience is in session. My name is Xavier Katana. My guest for today is... Mr. Wakas Ahmed, he is a world authority on multidisciplinary thinking. He is an author, scientist, and journalist. Wakas has degrees in the history of international relations and economics. He was appointed as chair of the Commonwealth's Global Citizenship Educational, Education Panel. Wakas is the founder of the Da Vinci Network, a global movement that wants to achieve the many-sided potentials of humans worldwide. He's the artistic director at the Khalili Collections, a diverse and important private art collection. He, His journal, journalism work has seen him occupy the position of global correspondent at First Magazine, one that saw him gain exclusive access and in interviews with various prime ministers and presidents all across the world. What a resume. Wakas is author of The Polymath, a book in which he looks at polymaths, people who have multidimensional minds, those that reject specialization in one area and pursue multiple objectives in different fields. He looks at the rules these people have played in history, the roles these people have played in history, and why this approach to life could be important to us in the future. Wakasa's work has been featured in Forbes, the Financial Times, the Lancet, he was selected as Graham Hancock's featured author of the month. Wow, what an amazing resume, Wakas! It's such a pleasure. I'm so excited to for this conversation. Welcome to HXP,
1: Xavier. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm especially um, uh, at the beginning of the new decade, um, where we all ought to be thinking a lot more about. Um, human potential in general but our own human potential in particular and uh, that human potential we've uh, historically been told ought to be one-dimensional but um, today hopefully we'll get into a bit more about um, how and why human potential every individual has a many-sided potential one that can be untapped through a very particular system a very particular approach to life a very particular mindset so thank you very much for having me on this uh, prestigious show
0: yes sir I mean I I really appreciate your presence I know it's a bit late for you where you are in in London I believe in the UK yep. and um you know I, I, I let's let's dig in let's this is your first book correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's my first book. Um, It took about um, five years, 10,000 hours of research, um, and um, a lot of interviewing, a lot of traveling around the world. Uh, It didn't begin as a book. Um, It began um, as a series of notes, actually, personal notes, a personal intellectual journey, Hmm. um, which came as a result of – a lot of a lot of hours, uh, 35,000 feet up high, uh, traveling the world through my work, um, some of which you've described earlier on uh, in your kind introduction. Um, but uh, but as a result of that, I started questioning a variety of things related to the individual, um, what our potential might be, what the role of the human is um, in the modern world, but also systems. Um, why are certain systems and institutions the way they currently are? And whether they ought to be that way. So that kind of intellectual exploration that everyone, I'm sure you and all of your listeners, um, are are going on or have been on, um, it's the same thing with me. It's just in my case, um, I I wrote my notes down, wrote my thoughts down. Hmm. And thankfully, it came together um, ultimately in the form of a book and um, was published by Wiley uh, earlier this year. Yeah, I mean,
0: congratulations, and yes, that is the essence of everything that we do on this show—is explore that that untapped human potential. I think that is yeah. kind of the tenet of everything we do here. So, you know, I I almost think I made a joke about this before in the in the pre conversation before we started, and I I said, yeah. you know, are you a are you a polymath? You know, but let's what is a polymath?
1: Well, a polymath. um is um, uh, has is a concept and a word that's been thrown around rather loosely um, over the past decades and even centuries. Um, and it means different things to different people. But in general, um, it's always meant somebody who has had um, a lot and uh, diverse um, kinds of knowledge and has often used that knowledge for some creative outcome. Um, so it could mean an individual who's excelled in many different fields. Um, it could mean an individual who's uh, rather encyclopedic in their knowledge and doesn't just know a lot about one thing, but um, a lot about many things. Uh, the way I describe it, however, is um, is through its core competency that every polymath um, has and mm. ought to have, mm-hmm. and that is through the competency of versatility, uh, the ability to to uh, move seamlessly between different fields and disciplines, and the way that usually manifests uh, is uh, that individual uh, as a result excelling at various seemingly unrelated fields. And I say seemingly because uh, if you speak to a polymath, they will often see connections between those fields. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in due course. Um, but but to, to the onlooker, um, to the so-called specialist or to the modern thinker who's trained to think about Um, accomplishment in a one-dimensional way that Mm -hmm. you ought to be a specialist at the expense of every other field Mm -hmm. Um, it was these fields um, um, might seem disparate or different but to the polymath um, they are very much connected so yeah that's the way i'd describe it is a versatile and exceptionally versatile individual who as a result um, excels in multiple seemingly unrelated fields
0: Hmm, OK, I mean, the cover of the book, which people can see now, uh, you know, it's it's it features da Vinci and da Vinci seems to be the core sort of tenant of tenant of what, you know, you s- sort of surround your your research by. And you mm. founded the da Vinci Network. So mm. you know why da Vinci?
1: Well, da Vinci is is the uh, given what I've uh, explained by way of definition of a polymath uh, just now. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci is the archetype of the polymath, at least in the Western mind, and um, because we know, we've been taught since school, in most at least European and American um, uh, educational establishments, that Leonardo da Vinci was not only an exceptional uh, visual artist painter, um, but he was also um, an exceptional Uh, engineer who would invent various things he was a mechanical engineer he was an architect to some extent Um, he was a scientist and anatomist to some extent Um, but there are many other sides to Leonardo da Vinci that if you go the deeper you go into the man he's one of the few men or humans in uh, in history I think that actually um, are very much live up to the hype Mm. Uh, that they're given um, at um, at conventional uh, schools and universities because he um he, he, was, um, he made significant contributions. He didn't just explore for the sake of exploring, but at least uh, from the benefit of hindsight, now we know that many of his explorations were groundbreaking. And whether or not they, they, they uh, came to fruition during his lifetime is another matter, but we know that his thinking was uh, ab- uh, beyond um, anything else during his lifetime at least. Um, and the result, I argue, throughout the book, the result is the fact that he um, had a multidimensional mind. He was able to look at each uh, concept, phenomenon, field, individual um, as um, as part of a system. So it's uh, part of a system, meaning that he was uh, somewhat of a systems thinker, which again, we'll go into in a bit more detail. Hmm. Uh, but he was, he was now systems thinking has become quite popular uh, in various fields and various spheres of life. But he was probably the original systems thinker, um, at least in Western history, because if you look at his notebooks, for example, um, of which there are many and they're scattered through various collections around the world. If you look at his notebooks, uh, they cover a variety of things um, uh, written and as, and drawn as well. Uh, and those things range from uh, botanical studies to um, anatomical studies to zoological studies to mechanical engineering designs to architectural designs mm-hmm. and 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 so on and so forth many of these sketches did inform his paintings of which there weren't many actually mm-hmm. but but um the fact is that um when an, any uh, individual today were to look at uh, this vast corpus of uh, of work in its entirety they would look at it and they would look they would see a, a, a seemingly sporadic uh, approach to exploration, where uh, on one page, for instance, he will um, he will talk about, uh, or he will um, either write about, or he will draw um, uh, the motion of waves uh, and the movement of water, and he would explore that. Um, and you'd look at uh, things like thermodynamics on the next page, and then you'd look at actually how hair falls um, on, a, on, a, on a woman as opposed to a man on the next page, and so on and so forth. So one, one thing, if you look at it uh, from a systemic approach, one thing or one phenomenon often uh, draws him to the attention of another, and so on and so forth. So he actually thought in a very systematic manner as opposed to a sporadic manner. Hmm. Um, this is why he's highly interesting study as he's a highly interesting case study as a polymath. And which is why um, he inspired me from a very young age, because um, as growing up, you um, Uh, at least in 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 the uk education system and i know it's it's very similar in the us and indeed in many parts of the world where you have a specialization system where you you start off rather broad and then you narrow in uh as you get older um and so if you have multiple passions which most uh, children do it's natural because as human beings we're multifaceted individuals Mm -hmm. Um, we we we're 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 bound to have multiple passions we then are taught or encouraged or even forced and compelled to, um, uh, to narrow this down and to compromise our many uh, interests and talents and ideas uh, at the expense of ultimately one, which is what uh, we're applying to university for, right? We apply for one degree. And in the US, at least you have a liberal arts degree, which is rather broad. But here in the UK and in many other parts of the world, Um, It's often a highly specialized degree. So you're supposed to know your specialized vocation when you're 16 or 17 years old, which is rather absurd. Um, So that is that is the kind of um, education, educational background I came from. So when I saw historical figures like Leonardo da Vinci um, excelling in so many other fields, um, um in addition to the artwork that we know him for now that I found that highly inspiring and ever since then it's uh, the concept of the polymath has been rather intriguing for me. So now when you look at the book um, uh, over these five years I've explored, examples of uh, such individuals male and female from different ty- different parts of the world uh, as well as from different periods in human history mm. and I realized that actually there are many Leonardo's scattered around history scattered around the world um, the deeper you look the more you find them and Leonardo is definitely still up there as one of the greats um, but as you may have seen th- with the book um, there are many many other examples.
0: Yeah it's amazing I mean I I, I've never told anyone this, but, you know, I think about Leonardo da Vinci quite a lot. You know, I'll be, it's, mm. it's really random and it's, it's, I, it's weird, I guess. But, you know, I think about the way he connected to the discoveries that he made. And mm-hmm. I, I think about his relationship to our society today and how he would probably in clinical regards be diagnosed as ADHD and, you know, prescribe some Absolutely, medication yeah. and, we would, you know, be erased from, you know, humans. And so you touched on my next question, you know, how common Mm. is this? How, you know, how spread out are, I mean, are there polymaths in the world that don't really realize that they're, they're polymaths and they're, you know, because of the mainstream, Mm. and because of the way our system is set up that, you know, we're forced into, you must study this, you must pick this as a career, you must do this, you know, and maybe... They're misdiagnosed.
1: Yep. And uh, my premise uh, of the book, actually, is that um, everyone originally was and therefore has the potential to be a polymath. So what I mean by that is that Uh, As I mentioned earlier on, uh, originally, everybody is a multifaceted human being. Um, We all have different dimensions to us, um, whether um, neurologically, biologically, psychologically, uh, emotionally. I mean, we have an an intellectual side, a physical side, a spiritual side and all the rest. Um, So how how then? uh, So if we're brought into this world and we're on this adventure, which is called life. Why then should we constrain ourselves um, for the majority of our lives doing one particular highly specialized thing at the expense of everything else that there is to discover? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure you relate to this, given how the the diversity of uh, of uh, of of, uh, interviewees you've um, had on your program. I mean, look at the world that's out there. Look at the ideas that there are to explore, to uh, to develop further, to assimilate Mm -hmm. in one's own life. Um, Look, um, that's just in terms of ideas. Look at places there are, look at the cultures there are, look at the languages there are, and so on and so forth. So when you've got this individual that's inherently multifaceted, entering into a world that is uh, inherently diverse, um, then enforcing specialization and especially long, uh, lifelong specialization on that individual is not only counterintuitive, but it's also counterproductive for the individual and for society. And so um, uh, that said, there are polymaths so there are individuals that stay true to that prim- primordial self um hmm. and continue uh, continue on that um, multi-dimensional journey uh, even if it's going against the grain that is uh, the modern education system and the modern uh, workplace and um uh, i've 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 um i've been trying to dig them out um Uh, through my research and it's been difficult because actually there are many latent polymaths who 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 kind of live this life or have this approach but um are often not afraid but reluctant to kind of uh wear that on their sleeve so to speak because it's not seen favorably by many people right so you have um uh, let's just say you had, a, you had a job as, I don't know, a banker or a taxi driver Or, or um, as a janitor or whatever it might be, whatever your job might be right. And that job then actually um, serves to uh, ultimately define you as an individual It's an, unfur- an unfortunate reality of human social affairs Once you, have, uh, once you go through um, that system of, of kind of uh, finding your place your profession becomes your identity. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you, psychologically, um, it seems that you ought not to play with that identity. You ought to um, roll with it, so to speak. And so when you um, when you try something different uh, or you do something or you engage in a different project or, um, or change your line of work, that is often seen uh, reluctantly, uh, hmm. skeptically, sometimes cynically by uh, your peers, by those around you, because they're not used to doing that. Uh, it's not the norm for them. So th- when they look at you doing that, they'll look um, sometimes deridingly uh, at you um, for kind of spreading yourself too thin or uh, doing something you don't know much about and, and and so on. So this this kind of exploration of Uh, another field or of multiple fields is not something that is encouraged. So with that in mind, going back to your question, when um, uh, individuals uh, uh, attend my talks or have read my book, um, I've had a lot of people get in touch with me and say or come and speak to me after a talk and say, hey, man, thank you so much finally, I can come out. And I say, okay, coming out, really? And he said, and they say, yeah, I mean, we never knew what we were. Um, we, we always lived this kind of life or had this approach or had this desire um, to, to live life in a particular way. Um, we were always inclined a particular way, but we've never had the validation. We've always had uh, been, been met with cynicism or skepticism. Mm. Um, and so, so for me, um, I'm glad to have, after having written a book and spoken at various places, um, I'm glad that actually people are coming forward and saying, you know what, this is not only something to be, uh, you know, something to keep on the side, uh, just to fulfill your own personal fancy. No, this is something that actually has a tremendous value to society. Uh, and so we ought to wear this pride, uh, proudly. And so, uh, one of the that's the reason that one of the main um, thesis of the book actually uh, you, you you may have noticed that um, the actually about a third of the book focuses on history, hmm. and the reason that's the case is that it is to show and giving various examples from different points in history and different cultures, um, um, is to show that actually polymaths have been the most influential individuals in human history that's now, my, that next, sounds like it. That's my <laughs> next question I, I, I
0: apologize to pause you i mean you're like a segue artist as well you know so okay okay so <laughs> let's let's talk about that let's talk about uh, homo sapiens and, and history because this is as you yes. said this is uh, a big part of of the book and what you cover oh. and you know you talk about you talk about how polymaths were mm-hmm. c- quite essential in regards to the survival of the human species, and mm-hmm. I, I find this absolutely fascinating. So please, please continue. Mm.
1: Yeah, this is this is um, this is one of the this is the the big bold thesis of the book, if there was one, and that is that um, if we knew if today um, in this special, highly hyper-specialized world. If we knew that polymaths were the most influential actors in human history, would we foster um, the production or the encouragement of polymaths through our education system and through our workplaces? Or would we continue to thwart it as we currently do? Right, So this is why it's very important to understand that throughout human history, those that we would now call polymaths um, have had um, the greatest influence in different spheres of life. So let's uh, uh, take, for example, um, in the sciences. So in the, sci- in the history of science um, or even in the history of philosophy, if you look at the main thinkers – Um, that you would conventionally regard as uh, those that have made major contributions that have transformed our understanding of that particular science or of science and philosophy in general, you would, if you dig deeper into their lives, you will realize that they had tremendously diverse backgrounds, intellectually, professionally, culturally, and so on. And Many of them, you might say, if it was uh, an exceptional case, you might think it's an exception. But from my research, it seems to be the rule that those people, like, for example, Nicholas Copernicus, we all know about his uh, transformational uh, heliocentric theory Mm -hmm. uh, in astronomy. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, if we are to look at it from the perspective of a 21st century scientific or academic perspective, then we would assume that Copernicus would have spent a tremendous amount of time in the lab focusing on mathematics, perhaps physics, astrophysics, or cosmology, and would have focused on that for the majority of his life before ultimately coming to his big, grand breakthrough. Hmm. Um, the, 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 the reality is almost the exact opposite. The reality is that he actually had an incredibly diverse background prior to, um, to making that breakthrough in astronomy. Uh, he Many people don't know this, but he had a background in economics. He was also an artist. He had a background in the law as well. Uh, he had a background in poetry as well, and actually a variety of other things before he went on to focus his efforts on understanding cosmology and therefore uh, making his grand breakthrough. That's just one example. But there are many, many others. And actually going it's a, uh, a good idea to lead on from that hmm. is a more recent study done um uh, i say recent but it was kind of dura- it was a, rec- uh, a study done of nobel prize winning scientists okay um that was done over the over the past uh, covering the past century of the 20th century and looking at actually Again, looking at this assumption as to whether uh, Nobel Prize winning scientists, those those whom we would assume uh, to be ultra specialists in their field and assume to be eating, sleeping, drinking, their micro specialism, uh, were actually the opposite. Uh, the vast majority of them, in fact, I think nearly all of them um, are known to have at least one unrelated hobby. Uh, a variety of them uh, most of them had that hobby in the um, in the arts, as opposed to the sciences. Some of them had those hobbies in or, or avocations in the, the humanities. The majority of them were much more likely to. So, for example, they were 25 times uh, uh, as likely as the average scientist to sing, dance, or act. Mm-hmm. 17 times as likely to be a visual artist. 12 times more likely to write poetry and literature. Eight times more likely to do a woodworking or some other craft. Four times more likely to be a musician, and twice as likely to be a photographer. So, wow. imagine imagine that uh, it com- it completely throws the assumptions on their head that. Um, that specialists, that w- those that we consider to be specialists, the most influential scientists in human history, or at least in recent human history, um, are actually more polymathic than than ultra specialists. So it's this, um, these examples that I find fascinating. And the, um, this is just within the sciences. If you look in the history of leadership, for example, whether the leadership be in business or in politics. We'll look at some of the great leaders or at least those. I mean, great is a rather subjective thing, isn't it? But um, at least those that are considered in conventional terms to be great leaders in in the likes of uh, business or politics. I mean, Winston Churchill um, is universally acclaimed, at least here. I, I shouldn't say universally acclaimed, but widely acclaimed. Um, here at least in the UK and also worldwide, to be one of the great leaders of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, he he actually started off as a journalist, uh, as a soldier, and uh, then went on to be a historian. And then when he was even, uh, even when he became prime minister of the United Kingdom, um, he had uh, a hobby of um, uh, watercolor painting and became highly accomplished and actually a lot of critics um, uh, really lauded his, his work um, as a painter. And so interesting thing is that he, he was constantly in pursuit of diverse interests, whether it be crafts, skills or knowledge. His mantra was always diversity. That's one example from British history. There are many from all over the world. Um, you have Akbar the Great in uh, in uh, Mughal, India. in, in uh, you have um, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent in uh, uh, Ottoman Turkey. Uh, you have, um, and and so on and so forth. And it, that's leadership in politics. And you have leadership in business. More modern, like, let's, let's look at... Um, and I think this would be of great interest, especially to the demographic of um, listeners here today, hmm. is actually if you look at um, leadership in business today and you look at some of the greatest um, entrepreneurs and business leaders hmm. that we all are inspired by or that many, at least those in in, in the world of business are inspired by um, – the most accomplished, i.e., those at the top, those that are moving and shaking, the likes of the Bransons or the Elon Musks or previously Steve Jobs and mm-hmm. and so on. Um, if you look at uh, Jeff Bezos, all of these individuals, Bill Gates, let's let's think about what 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 is their mindset? Number one, number two, what is the history of their professional career? Uh, if we look at if we look at these two things, what we will find with all of the examples I've given and beyond is we'll find that many of these uh, actually had diversity as their approach because they, they realized that diversity uh, was the optimal path to creativity. And so they... Um, uh, I mean, like for example, you know, uh, Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates now he he always had very diverse interests, but now um, his his reading uh, club, as you know, his book club is 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 very very popular. He likes to read far and wide. He always he always promotes the need for lifelong learning um, at all times. Uh, Richard Branson, very diverse. Not only his business interests. I think he has about 200 business interests, um, who, which are incredibly diverse in different sectors. Um, um, some of which he plays less of a role. Some of which he plays more of a role. But he, as an individual, is also very uh, um, a serial hobbyist, as we know. He's even broken records in, in 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 golf and in air ballooning and so many other things. And then you have you know Steve Jobs, previously who um, who we know um, attributed his breakthrough in business. Um, to his combined interests in uh, in design, in calligraphy, uh, 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 in 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 promotion and marketing, uh, in science, so he combined m- many of these uh, different facets of his uh, interests. Uh, into creating a breakthrough and there are many many other examples elon musk we know he had his in business interests or m- most of which been successful have all been in markedly different fields um, and again if you speak to him i mean you should watch interviews with these with these individuals they they are i mean we'll give another example of a wealthy um entrepreneur oprah winfrey she has incredibly um uh, I mean, we must give female examples because it's incredibly important um uh, she has an incredibly diverse background in, in, in acting, in directing, in um, in various forms of business, in social entrepreneurship, and so on and so forth. So um, what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that the real movers and shakers in science, and we haven't touched on art, but we can do. Um, but in science, in art, in leadership, business, politics, humanitarianism, um, all, all spheres of life. If you look at the real top, the 1%, the 2%, uh, and this is something even Tim Ferriss, when I spoke with him, um, affirmed. Um, he, as you know, he's interviewed some of the leaders in all kinds of fields. True. And he affirms exactly the same thing, that actually if you look at the 1% or 2%, um, whatever field it might be, uh, as we said, the, those 1% or 2% have incredibly diverse backgrounds and they have a multi-dimensional approach to their so-called specialism, which is allowed for that breakthrough. So that this is something that kind of this is a a thread that um, that goes through the entire book.
0: Wow. Wow. You know, I'm I'm feeding off of this. I love this so much because, you know, I I study these individuals, you know, I've I've bought their biographies and I I want to sort of dissect You know, how they're doing, what they're doing. I want to learn as much as I can from them. I I connect with that. And, you know, that, that old maxim that we hear, we heard growing up, at least in America, uh, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, Mm. you know, stuff like that. It just, it, it, it just sort of, it, it it makes me uncomfortable, you know? And, but there's, there's someone that in your book that you, you mention. And I mean, I find the story, incredibly intriguing it's uh imhotep and apparently imhotep was just a commoner right and Mm. he he gained he gained he somehow gained the the king's attention how did how did this happen
1: that's right that's right i mean imhotep is a fantastic example um to be sharing here on this platform because uh he is the what you might regard as the earliest known polymath or earliest recorded polymath just because we know a lot uh, or relatively um quite a lot about him given the fact that he was from 20 27th century bc which is a long time ago and we have limited records then but um but he's a great example of a polymath because um he's actually excelled in multiple fields during his time as you as you correctly said he rose from being a commoner which is very highly uncommon during that time um, in pharaonic egypt um, where you had a highly elitist class or even caste um, which uh, held on to power in many regards but there were there was some form of very limited meritocracy in and, and this allowed someone like imhotep who started off really as a kind of an, um, an architect and a physician um, to really excel and gave him the platform to do so. So when he, he started off um, as a physician, and um, uh, he, he uh, many, many say before that he was a kind of Aristotelian, Uh, sort of learner, lifelong learner, rigorous learner, who just wanted to learn about absolutely everything. And um, he ultimately um, became a physician, a highly acclaimed and renowned physician at the time, caught the attention of King Joseph at the time. Um, There is some dispute about the history of this. So I don't want to go into too much detail about that. But um, the long and short of it is that after gaining that attention, um, this gave him access to a lot of resource material, um, a lot of knowledge at the hmm. time, which he then um, – he didn't use that knowledge to think, okay, what can I now specialize in? He used that knowledge to say, all right, so maybe I can contribute to this, that, and that. So what he did was he was interested in, in, um, in spirituality, so he became um, a high priest um he he went th- we uh, he underwent the training and and uh then went uh underwent um and led various ritualistic ceremonies at the time um he was interested in philosophy so he learned uh, a lot about the philosophy um of his forefathers uh and then developed a kind of a thinking of his own he he was also um very interested in cosmology and architecture. And back then, um, as you may know, speaking with Graham and the likes, um, uh, Architecture and cosmology was pretty much seen as one field um, because um, you had to celestial guidance. Guidance was incredibly important for the geometry um, when Mm -hmm. it came to um, when it came to architectural design. Mm -hmm. So if you we know a lot about the pyramids, the grand the grand pyramids um, or the grand pyramid of Giza, for instance. Mm -hmm. But um, not far from there, you have the pyramids, uh, the step pyramids at Saqqara and those step pyramids are known to have been designed by Imhotep himself wow and um so so uh, and then he also wrote a lot of poetry Um, He became, um, and because of this kind of multifarious accomplishment uh, at that time by a commoner, um, he was almost considered a sort of demigod at the time. How could somebody uh, of human form accomplish so much coming from his background? So he is not only the first recorded polymath that we know of, um, he's also, and we must remember this, he's from the African continent. And that should inspire many, and that should uh, provoke a lot of thought um, in a world today where, we we live uh, where um, we often deride the accomplishments or, or the history of, of Africa in general. So the first uh, recorded polymath was actually an African.
0: Hmm. Wow, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I don't even know where to start. And there's so much that I want to ask you that I have to reduce down into one question, right? So, sure. I mean, you know, it, it's it's amazing that it seems like you know, history could have bypassed you know, so many people and in current times even, you know, we could be bypassing so many people by, mm. you know, this this sort of regard that we have towards learning and understanding things and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the way big pharma is. You know, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned this a bit earlier and I, and I do want to bring this back up. It, do, I mean, mm. do you see it as... A genetic thing? I mean, is there, you know, maybe a chromosome or something? Mm. I mean, do you see it split between men and and women equally? How does mm. that work?
1: Good question. I think, um, I think, uh, they're just like any other attribute, um, cognitive attribute, personality attribute, um, uh, and, um, and ability. It, um, there's got to be a genetic component to it. So the idea of exceptional versatility, um, there is a genetic component to it. So for example, um, there is... um, Um, there are genetic factors involved in personality and personality is a long a big driver of of polymathy right so for example um, we know from from cognitive science and psychology that you have the big five sort of personality traits one of them or at least one of them um, it seems to be highly correlate with um, the idea of the polymath or the personality of the polymath that one is openness. Now, openness is uh, a kind of personality trait that um, that means that you're open to new ideas, new phenomena, wow. new um, new experiences, new people, and uh, new concepts, and so on and so forth. So, there are people that are genetically um, predisposed, I suppose, to be more open. But we also know that, with as with almost all personality traits, there's probably a, a 0.4 variance, so, so a 40% um, uh, influence of genetic factors, uh, which means that there's a 60% um, influence of environmental factors, and that is a general rule when it comes to uh, there's certain general rule when it comes to personality, and that sort of uh, genetic versus environmental. Um, uh, influence proportion or ratio is um is is different for different abilities as well and different cognitive abilities, mm-hmm. but by and large, by and large, we must accept that there is a genetic component. However, the most in most cases, the environmental factors play the predominant role. So nurturing uh, a particular. Um, personality trait or a particular ability um, is highly possible in each case so going back to the idea of the polymath um, as I said before everyone, everyone, I I believe everyone is predisposed to be polymathic now whether or not you ultimately be or display yourself as a polymath or demonstrate yourself as a polymath uh, is determined by um, whether the environment around you allows that so whether the schooling system the economic system um and the uh, the work system the employment system encourages that or whether it suppresses that and the suppressing of that might be systemic um and inadvertent or it might be um very highly purposeful so for example um in, in the past we know that we know the that power distribution in society has been unequal for most if not all of human history and that uh, unequalness uh, was more at, uh, sometimes than others but it's always been there so when you have an unequal um, when you have power that's been uh, monopolized or centralized uh, amongst a certain class or a group of people what's often been the case is that knowledge itself, Uh, has often been confined as opposed to shared and uh, that knowledge has often not been used to nurture the masses Mm. Um, so we know that there are various reasons for this but basically going back to your question as to whether um, um, whether there is whether it's innate or whether it can be I think to a large large degree this is something that can definitely be nurtured. Everyone has the potential to be a polymath. I mean, think about it. Uh, you, you um, uh, The definition I give or the criteria I give is that you need to excel in at least three seemingly unrelated fields. Now, uh, I'm, I'm sure if you ask any child going back to primary school, if you ask every child um, what Things they're interested in what you know what intrigues them what interests them or even if you look at the things that they're good at if you expose them to various things they're bound to be good at multiple things it's just that we don't expose them to multiple things neither do we encourage them to pursue multiple things going forward so i think there's a huge amount of untapped potential here which um uh which if if allowed to uh to to flourish Could really lead to tremendous results that are just completely inconceivable for the modern mind.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's so much to think about when we think about you know where society could be. You know, with figures such as Nikola Tesla. I'm sure many people Mm. that are listening to the show understand know his significance in history and how how much. You know what we understand as the modern world would have changed if he was allowed mm-hmm. to con- continue doing what he was doing. Um, but yep. which yep. leads me into sort of my next question, which is mm. what you call financially doomed polymaths. I, I love this. Uh, so, you know, okay. So, how yeah. what it it seems like there is an aspect of. Cultural baggage, you know, there is a judgment that is happening mm. when you know someone is sh- demonstrates this, you know, versatility in interests mm. across you know different spectrums, and mm-hmm. so you know why why do you think that you know a polymath would be financially doomed as as you put it?
1: Well, uh, the 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 idea is that the polymath uh, th- that is the assumption that's a societal so- assumption that the polymath is or is bound to be financially doomed um i of course throughout the book challenge that um that assumption because um uh going back to what you said earlier on this this um very well-known phrase of jack of all trades master of none which actually has many other variations in different languages across the world. It's that, I mean, that, this idea of, hey, you're, if, you're, um, if you're doing many things, you're frivolous, you're, um, you're kind of diluting your interest, you're not paying attention, you're not focusing, right? And therefore, you're not being productive. This idea, and if you're not productive, then you're not going to be financially secure, so this this whole idea um, is very common in different societies, and it's become common because of the rise of specialization as a culture over at least over the past century and a half to two centuries at least in Western history, and that's because um, it's a myth ultimately that's been propagated by um, by industrial capitalism as a system. Because if you think about industrial capitalism as a system, um, uh, hmm. at least initially. What happened was it relied on a particular mode of productivity, hmm. which um, which treated um, human beings as cogs in a machine. As we know, we often use that term now, but that literally used to be the case, at least in factories. And in, in many cases, is still the case uh, in many modern corporations. But um, the human beings are, are treated as cogs um, that ought to just focus on doing one thing. And that one thing is their financial uh, security. That one thing is their identity. That one thing is something that uh, should 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 um, uh, should should not um, encourage them to look beyond. So when we're looking when when we look at that kind of system of division of labor, which is the way um, it was phrased, if we look at that system, by its very nature, it's limiting human potential because it's already placing a stigma on every individual. And telling them that actually this is your function and this is your role in society. And once you're told that and once you're gaining your financial income from it, um, the more you progress or uh, the more you move forward in your career as time goes on. Um, the more you put you've kept that egg all your eggs in that one basket, and the more difficult it is for you to diversify and to um, to break out of that box so that system has been in place for a very long time, and the education system the modern education system is also um, based on a system that serves that um, industrial capitalist model. So initially, the reason why mass education actually came into being, at least in the West, um, is because um, a variety of uh, individuals were needed, human beings were needed to operate like machines. And they were needed to operate machines, but also operate like machines. And Mm -hmm. the only thing they needed to learn was how to read instruction manuals. So Mm -hmm. they were taught language, and they were taught what to do um, uh, in that particular field, and they were taught nothing else. And as time went on, the education system then uh, took on the guise, or took on the model of the factory so you have subjects or fields as we today know them, uh, maths, English, um, uh, uh, history, physics, and so on and so forth, art and so on. They're all split from one another as if they are chunks of um, productive output. And they they are um, split from one another and taught to students in isolation from one another. And when they're taught in isolation from one another, that student is not going to understand what the purpose of that nugget of information is to their lives. But more importantly, what what is the importance of that? Nugget of knowledge to the next nugget of knowledge that seems completely unrelated to me, so what you have is when you have so you have children still going through that system of of knowledge disparate knowledge um, kind of um, thrown into different segments and chunks and then thrown at them with no context, no perspective. Um, how do we expect them to internalize this? So that's the education system, but it doesn't that doesn't relate as much to your question. With your question, it's about financial security, right? Mm-hmm. So with financial security, um, we're as a result of the education and the employment model, um, we are then sold this myth that hey guys, stay, stick in your lane and don 't and you, otherwise you 'll be a jack of all trades master of none. Meanwhile, you have the most influential actors in society the leader the entrepreneurs that are running that factory and the entrepreneurs that are running factories in multiple sectors and business leaders that are engage, that are contributing to many fields and scientists that have understood that this is a myth and therefore diversified their interests. Those are the individuals. That one percent, two percent, are the ones that are making the grand breakthroughs. Where, while the rest of us, rest of us are left to believe the grand myth of the jack of all trades, master of none. Right. So I think that's that's uh, the the grand lie that we need to dispel. Yeah. I mean, I think I think
0: we're doing that. I think you know your book is is really you know cutting the the edge on on this and you know opening this up so that people can see you know it's. It's not so bad to really explore the multi dimensions of your creativity. You know who yeah. you are and your interests. You know what inspires you. What What are you? You know really inspired by. I mean, there's there's so many people that I encounter all the time that tell me. Mm-hmm. You know they're they're stuck in their nine to five jobs and they're absolutely abs, they're they have money yeah. but they're miserable. They they hate it.
1: And well, You know, it's so,
0: so, you know, I kind of want to talk, I want to get into, I know that you are doing, you're completing your graduate studies as a neurologist in neurology. And so, you know, I mean, this is a big interest for me. It's just the human brain. So, you know, something that I've been thinking about when encountering your work is, uh, you know, is it a left brain thing? Is it a right brain thing? Mm. Is there some sort of crosstalk? Happening? Are the left and right hemispheres working together? What's what's going on there in the brain with of a polymath?
1: Um that is a fantastic question, actually. Um, before before I address that, and even related to that, actually, is is just the point you mentioned just before, which was about um, how people are feeling unfulfilled, and and that's an important point because uh, up until now we've talked about the importance of the polymath to society, that they that they're making the big contributions and able to do so because of their diverse backgrounds. But what we must also be very mindful of is the importance of being a polymath or pursuing polymathy to the individual. And that's highly important because it speaks to the idea of self-actualization. And self-actualization is something that people, that you're speaking of when you say that these people are making money but they're not feeling fulfilled, Mm. it's because because they haven't reached that self-actualization in the way that Maslow actually described, which many people forget actually. The way that it was originally described is that self-actualization is the point at which uh, the individual pursues and is able to be all they can be, right? So not one particular thing, not one specialism, no, just because you made a fantastic contribution in the sciences or the arts or in film or in whatever it might be, no. um, You're still going to remain unfulfilled because there are many sides to you and they all Need to be expressed in one way or another, or at least many of them need to be expressed in one way or another. Hmm. So true self actualization is when you're staying true to your primordial self, which is diverse, wow. right? So that 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 talks to the um the, the initial point you made, and then going moving forward to um the neurological uh, underpinnings uh, of. Polymathy. now this is highly interesting because there's still a lot of work being done in this area um for example i'll 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 mention just very briefly some of the research that's being done um uh i'm not sure if you had have you had dr ian McGillchrist on your program before your show before no not okay i I highly recommend it because he wrote he wrote this internationally acclaimed book called um, "The Divided Brain: The Master and His Emissary," okay, and it was uh, a few years ago published. But um, it's just a phenomenal book because he looks at how, um, how actually the human brain and the focus on a particular hemisphere of the human brain uh, shaped society or civilization, and vice versa, and how hmm. this uh, this how this has uh, how this has actually um, caused or led to the trajectory of Hume, of, of at least Western history um, as we know it, and so this is very interesting because he himself is a psychiatrist and he's looking at it from that perspective. But he's also um, uh, he's also highly accomplished in the field of English literature uh, and other fields too. So it's not surprising that um, a polymathic mind like his um, would identify. Um, such an issue and what he identifies really is that firstly um, for optimal brain performance where you can unleash the polymath within you for optimal brain performance you need an effective synchronicity between the right and left hemispheres and and that is something we'd need to we need to work more on trying to discover how to attain that because it's um it's at times uh, and 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 today what he argues is that and just to, just 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 to summarize um and paraphrase uh, today we, we live in a world that is, has a high focus or individuals or humans have a high focus on left brain thinking. And left brain thinking has resulted in phenomenal feats of technological advance and, and many other things. Um, but what that does also is that it, uh, um, left brain thinking also corresponds with the kind of philosophical worldview um, that we promote in society and therefore what kind of systems and structures we build in societies and right now they seem to be highly segmented highly reductive and lacking real perspective and holistic uh, analysis and so the 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 mark of the right hemisphere is actually exactly the opposite which is to have um, a more bigger picture Um, view of any given situation not just the world at large any given situation and also um, to be more open-minded to be um, to seek connections between different things so if you're a systems thinker you're more likely to be um, uh, more of a a, a right hemisphere think uh, thinker and so on and so forth but there is work being done um, uh, around the, the whole area of of versatility adaptability And uh, interdisciplinarity, uh, which all of which um, um, is related to the idea of the polymath. But we're still in very very early stages, so we can't. I'm very reluctant, as somebody who has studied neuroscience, um, I'm very um, reluctant to um, to make any such connections with any great authority at this stage.
0: Hmm. It's it's really truly fascinating. Yeah you know, it it's been a puzzle for me as well. I I've been thinking about this for a long time. I'm curious to know if you've uh if you've discovered Robert Monroe's work and hemispheric synchronization binaural audio binaural beats yet. Yeah. yeah Sorry, I mean, can you repeat that? Uh hemispheric synchronization Robert Monroe. Yes. You have. So so I mean I mean here's here's a guy. I mean for the people that are listening that don't know who he is and uh he he wrote a series of books called uh, Journeys. His first book was called Journeys Out of the Body. He discovered that he, you know, had this ability, I guess, to uh, project his mind outside of his body, and he goes mm. through this this whole series of. I mean, it's truly remarkable because he was able to describe this journey in the most objective way, whereas people, I think, tend to color things. He did, he purposefully, very, in a very calculated way, he did his best to remain objective. And through Mm. these journeys near the end uh, of the series, he is given this tool. Like, he is contacted by this higher intelligence, and he's given you know what he he patented as hemisync hemispheric synchronization, so i mean yeah. why don't you tell us what that is and and how it works please
1: yeah um if you don't mind can you can you repeat the first part of your first part of your question because I didn't get that i
0: okay so so okay so hemisync is just this this process of playing you know your yep. brain is is picking up on these tonal vibrations in the air that, that vibrate your eardrums and it's pulling a frequency out of that. And it turns out if, if you play, you know, uh, a frequency in one ear, like seven Hertz in one ear and, and another frequency like 11 Hertz, your brain will automatically take the average of those two numbers. And when it does that, your the left and right brain hemispheres in your, in your head start to communicate. They start to talk. Each other, yep. so yeah. I mean, is there any? I mean, it, could we harness this tool? Could we? Could we somehow, you know, yes. use this yeah. to engineer polymaths?
1: Uh, yes, and and actually, um, many polymaths that are engaging in different fields. Uh, so for example, if there is a one, one person who's, who's, uh, who's engaging in a scientific pursuit as well as an artistic pursuit simultaneously, they will actually be able to feel these, um, uh, the synchronicity that results from these vibrations or the different vibrations emitted through different experiences. And when that, when that happens, um, it affects the, the the conscious as well as the subconscious and 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 something ferments within the brain and uh, again the neuroscience of creativity is something that's being explored um, a lot these days and um, we still are very very in the, in the infant stages of that journey but um, but one thing is for sure that when you have, uh, when you have diversity of input, and whether that input be of frequency that results from a particular activity or something else, a different mode of thinking, um, uh, a, dif- a different kind of uh, hemispheric focus, mm-hmm. whatever that might be, that diversity will will inevitably create something new. When you have two separate ideas, phenomena, inputs, whatever or factors, whatever they might be, when they when they converge, they synthesize. To make something new and that something new is an act of creativity so we know that that happens anyway um how we can engineer that how we can manufacture that is something that um that educational institutions research organizations need to spend more time on
0: wow i mean because we are absolutely crushing this man i, I everyone in the audience today is is just loving this conversation and same Mm -hmm. here me too um so you know i have to bring this up let's talk about drugs because you know psychedelics are experiencing this re-emergence i mean there's this you know it seems like silicon valley is picking up on microdosing this is more and more common uh you know in it's it seems like people are you know harnessing the tool of that and yep. what, what happens in those states as a way to invent new things. I mean, as you know, mm-hmm. Albert Crick, he visualized mm-hmm. DNA. It's, it's talked about, you know, it's theorized that he yes. was microdosing yes. or under the influence I mean, Steve Jobs. The, mm. So it goes on. So,
1: the list goes on, absolutely. So
0: how, I mean, let's talk about that. I mean, what's your position on psychedelics and, and their, you know, impact on society and, and then also polymaths?
1: Yeah, um, this actually uh, this question is inevitable when you talk about polymaths because when you're talking about polymaths, you're talking about different modes of thinking, knowing, and being, right? Um, when you're when you when you're coming when you take off your lab coat and then you pick up the guitar. Um, you're entering a different mode of being. Uh, and it requires different cognitive skills. It requires a different emotional connection. It requires a different kind of thinking in general. Um, it also, the output itself is also very different. So with this in mind, um, we have to look at uh, psychedelics. As um, as we all know, uh, it's indisputable that you'd enter alternate modes of consciousness um uh with different into different levels and in different ways depending on what it is um you're experiencing but um but we know that actually an alternative mode of consciousness actually comes about and that uh, that alternate mode is actually um something that uh is either familiar or unfamiliar uh, it's something that's that's kind of uh, something that's completely new or something that's semi new. We don't know, but the the sheer fact, I think, um, without knowing too or having too much experience of my um, uh, of my own, what I will say is that the fact that there is a lot of scientific information uh, 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 available about the benefits attached, or uh, or at least the effects of psychedelic experience on the human mind and its altering impact, number one. And number two, the amount of anecdotal um, uh, knowledge we have about certain individuals, some of whom you've named, there are many, many others, that have attributed their creative breakthroughs in music, art, sciences, and so on to some form of psychedelic experience. Um, the fact that those anecd- so many of those anecdotes exist, uh, amongst the most creative people in the world together with the emerging science of psychedelics means that we must take this seriously when it comes to cognitive enhancement um, and cognitive exploration. We must take it seriously uh, and its relation to the polymath again um the idea of the polymath is something uh, relatively new in people's minds. Now people are starting to think, think about it. But its relation to, um, to, to polymaths, I think we're already, by being a polymath, you're already a kind of altering your mode of consciousness in a more subtler or in a more different way. And we know the benefits of that. So, of course, um, um, uh, using psychedelics, um, is taking it to a completely different level, and something that we must continue to research.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, Cas, I kn- I know that it's getting late for you there, and we're we're already over no time. Is you know, is there a question that I should have asked you that that I didn't, or something that you know I, I should have brought up that that we didn't we didn't bring up tonight?
1: Um, no, I think you've, you've managed to cover um, a lot of the important um, facets of this um, highly fascinating phenomenon. Um, I think one thing that we must reiterate is that, um, is, is that many people might look at this idea today skeptically. But, if we understand the history or an evolution of that scepticism, as we've touched on briefly today and which is um, which I go into in much more depth in the book. We'll understand that we have been conditioned to think about the polymath in this way. So it's very natural for us to have this initial skepticism surrounding the concept. But I believe many people, including the listeners of this um, of this show, will connect to this idea in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And if any of them, um, if, it, if it inspires any of them to kind of explore or actually Pursue something they've always wanted to pursue, or explore something anew. Uh, it's as you said, it's a new decade. Let's try something new. It doesn't have to come the come at the expense of the old. In fact, um, uh, you you we talk about the journey. The journey is all about um, evolution. Our own journeys through life is an evolutionary journey so when we've when we think that we're secure and that we've accomplished in one field we can always bring new insights to that field through external stimuli and this is a very very important point i conclude my book with um, a very important point which is that actually the true specialist is indeed a polymath the true specialist is indeed A polymath, and the reason for that is because now, in uh, in an age of automation, superintelligence, and all the many other um, futuristic scenarios that I'm sure you've covered through through other episodes too, with this age looming, we cannot afford um, to try to confine ourselves and stay comfortable in one field and one job. Alone, we can't do that. This is not an effective survival strategy because that job or that field will either be automated, uh, computerized at some stage in the near future. After which, you will have to reinvent yourself. So, reinvention should be seen as an opportunity, but we ought to preempt that uh, that time um, and that scenario. And we should cultivate the um, the competency of of versatility and adaptability and we should cultivate the personality trait that we all have within us which is openness so we can explore new things or at least have the propensity and potential to explore new things as and when the time comes so that when uh, a new opportunity arises we have some knowledge we have some skill in it or at least we have uh, the enthusiasm and drive to acquire that knowledge and skill and um and i think uh, we're talking about sapiens and um, uh, uh, Yuval Harari, who wrote the book Sapiens. Uh, and he also wrote, um, as you know, the uh, um, Homo Deus and the 21st, uh, 21 lessons for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Now, this is interesting because when he's often asked in interviews, and you may have acknowledged this, when, he, uh, when he's asked in interviews, what is the big core skill? What, what what do we need to know? How do we need to equip ourselves from all your lessons that you, that you learned from reading and writing about history in the future, um, his 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 common answer is reinvention. Reinvention is the most important skill to nurture. It is the most inevitable uh, thing that we need to undergo in the future. And that is directly correlated with the idea of the polymath, because whether you're doing things simultaneously that are in different fields or whether you're having a, a serial um, career changes in different fields, that doesn't matter. The idea is that on that journey, you have diversity. Uh, that diversity can come at once or it can come um, in due course. It doesn't matter. But that is, some, that is a mindset that allows you to be more open, to be more flexible and to be more indispensable in in the age of the machine.
0: It's poetry what costs, I mean, what a what an absolutely classic, instant classic episode. I know many, many people are going to hear this this show, and I, I think it's I, I think the work that you're doing is remarkable. I mean it, it's it's Thank so you. so important because, you know, as we you know as we move into parental roles and you know we have children and we're we 're teaching them and we're we 're nurturing them, I think it 's so yeah. important to recognize that you know having this this level of interest and you know wanting to explore different avenues of thought and expression that 's okay it 's okay to do that
1: absolutely you don 't
0: have to try to fit you know a circle and a square together it just doesn 't work that like that so You know, I'm just, I'm just elated at, at this episode. So I highly, highly recommend the book to anyone. Where can people, you know, get in, in your, the book, a copy of the book or your website? Where would you like to direct them?
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, so, uh, the, the, the website is the hyphen polymath.com. Um, the book is available on um, all major online outlets Um, of course, Amazon, um, Amazon in different countries, um, and also the, um, uh, forthcoming I should mention this that um, there is a forthcoming ideas festival focused on the idea of the polymath and interdisciplinarity which is forthcoming in London in spring 2020 this is something that's really going to take the book to the, to the next level i.e take the, the, the thought of the polymath or the thinking behind the polymath to action and to foster cross disciplinary collaborations and more information on that will be available through social media and um, social media, namely Twitter, uh, the polymath book, uh, and Twitter at the Da Vinci network.
0: Okay. Okay. What's the, what's the exact URL for the website that, that you have?
1: Uh, it's, uh, www.the hyphen. And or that's the dash polymath.com.
0: Perfect guys. You heard it here. I mean, what an amazing episode. Absolutely remarkable work that Wakas is doing is just... it's truly remarkable. So I highly, highly recommend you support his work. Go pick up a copy of The Polymath. You will love it. If you enjoy this episode, you will love the book. So you can hear how hyped up I am about this. Love this. I'm so passionate about these types of things because it's important that we, you know, train... The, the people coming after us our, our children and their children you know how to think and how to look at the world right? I think you would agree with that. So it's a new decade it's 2020 welcome to it thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, leave us a review get on iTunes thank you guys so much be back next week Really appreciate the presence of every single one of you that are listening. Happy New Decade.